You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. The journey that Jesus mentions in the story of the Good Samaritan from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 18 miles long and descends from around 750 metres above sea level to around 250 metres below sea level. That's where Jericho is, the lowest city in the world. So a height difference of about 1,000 metres, which is roughly the same as Scarfell Pike. So it's quite a trek, tallest mountain in, in the UK. And we, so we've got this uh, picture of this kind of precipitous journey uh, downhill from Jerusalem to Jericho. And I think that descent is really important. It certainly captured the imagination of many of the early church commentators who read this story. They saw in it a, pa- a parallel between uh, Jesus' descent to humanity. And they, they read some stuff into that, which we might come back to later. But I want you to, to capture that image just for a moment, partly because it puts you in the story. But also there is a descent here in Luke's writing. A few verses before our reading today... Luke is talking about the, the, the highest heights, if you like, of theological truth, of revealed truth. He, he, he's talking about Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. There's talk of the Trinity and the relationship between the Father and the Son in eternity. Those are the few verses we didn't read before. So you've got the heights of theological truth and you've got this descent into the deepest, most practical, everyday application of what it means to be a Christian. The, the, the application of God is Trinity, so what is love your neighbour as yourself? And so actually, I think for Luke, that's very deliberate. That placement is very deliberate. These two things close together. It's this descent, not from one thing that's really true to something that's irrelevant, but actually from one thing that's hard for us to grasp to coming down to our level and saying, actually, this is applied, practical Christianity. Love your neighbour as yourself. Um, the Good Samaritan, of course, is a very familiar pas- uh, passage. Uh, I think I said last time, I often imagine the types of people who come to church on the morning, maybe we've got a visitor here and me haven't been to church for 20 years and like the last time you came or last school assembly you were at, it was probably the Good Samaritan as well. So my apologies for that it's a familiar <laughs> passage. There are all these different, you know, I'd like to be preaching on the time when Elisha calls bears out of the wood to maul some teenagers who mock him or something like that. But there is something... <laughs> There is something uh, God wants to say to us through this very familiar passage. I'm not going to recite all the various details of the Good Samaritan, uh, all the various social issues that are around it. But at the heart of what I think God wants to say to you this morning and to me is uh, to ask ourselves this question. When the man asked Jesus, who is my neighbour? Why didn't Jesus just say, everyone? Because, I mean, that is essentially what he says, right? In the end, you you could kind of sum up what he's saying. is The the teacher in the law, the expert in the law, is asking this this hard question, who is my neighbour? And Jesus' answer is effectively, well, everyone is. And and that was the issue, really, you know, at the time, was is there there people we can exclude or do we have to love everyone? Why doesn't Jesus just answer that? Why does he tell a parable? Well, we can just about tell from Luke's... Luke doesn't give us a lot of detail of what's happening. This isn't, that's not the mode of, uh, of history he's in as he recounts these chapters. He's not telling us exactly where Jesus was or any of those things. But we can tell from the context that Jesus was teaching 
uh, in the manner of a rabbi, because this man stands up to ask a question, and the only forum where you would do that is where someone was teaching as a rabbi. So this man stands up to ask Jesus a question. He's not being entirely honest. He, he's not an honest inquirer. He wants to test Jesus. Now, we could read that in a very sort of negative way. Maybe he wants to prove that Jesus is a fraud or something like that. Or maybe he has some genuine interest and he wants to test if Jesus knows his stuff. We don't know the guy's heart. We just know what Luke wrote about him. Um, he wants to test Jesus. And the test sort of backfires because he wants to see if Jesus knows his stuff And actually, by the time Jesus answers the first part of this question, it looks like he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's an expert in the law, it says this in the passage. So he asked this question that was actually probably very obvious in one sense. Like, if you were schooled uh, in in the Jewish law at the time, Jesus' answer is, well, what does the law say? And effectively what he's saying is, why are you asking me the question? You already know the answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And love your neighbour as yourself. It's a good, concise answer, but it's, it's kind of elementary in one sense. And so this guy is left looking a bit red-faced because it looks like he wanted, to, he wanted to be testing Jesus and it looks like Jesus is saying, well, you, you should kind of know the answer to this question. So he wants to justify himself, it tells us in verse 29. Wanting to justify himself. Well, of course, that's the law. The difficulty is, <laughs> love your neighbour as yourself is, Figuring out who your neighbour is, isn't it? That's 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 the clever thing behind my question. Uh, you, know, you, you should, you know, if you're really going to answer my question, that's that's what I'm really asking. He's trying to justify himself so he doesn't look silly. The real issue: who is my neighbour? That's where it gets complicated. What are the limits of charity? Who are the people that we shouldn't help? You know, the, and it's the same for us too. We want love your enemy, right? We're okay with that, but what about? the homeless guy begging outside Charing Cross or in Queen Square in Crawley or whatever. You know, what are the limits of charity? That's when it actually gets complicated, isn't it? Like, how do I, how do I love my neighbour? So that's a really good question. And it, like I said, in one sense, Jesus' answer is straightforward. He basically says, says oh, everyone. But here's the interesting thing. He's not content with answering the man's question on his own terms. This man is asking... He's, the way he phrases the question is some, it's something like this. It's like, what one thing can I do to inherit eternal life? He's thinking of like a something he can possess, if you like. An action he can tick off that will get him into heaven. Or get him into relationship with God, make sure he's right with God. Who is my neighbour... He's interested in his neighbour as, as kind of an object, a thing to be... Uh, he's not really thinking about relationships or people. He's, he's looking for a category that he can... Like a checklist. And Jesus turns it around. If you think about it, the answer to the man's question from the story of the Good Samaritan, who is my neighbour, is not a Samaritan, is it? It's the man lying on the side of the road. Right? You ever thought about that before? Actually, if you, the answer to the question, who is my neighbour, if, uh, if you take the man's question, is actually the man lying on the side of the road has been beaten up by robbers. But Jesus turns it around and answers this man's question with, who was a neighbour to this man? And then says to the guy, this isn't something you can possess. It's not like a, a thing you can check off to get yourself into heaven. This is an actual issue for you. You go and do likewise. 
He turns neighbour from a noun into a verb, if you like. He t- it takes it from a, a thing to be possessed to an action to be done. You go and do likewise. And essentially, I think dealing with this man very, in a very personal way, taking someone who is out, basically out to, to test him, and dealing with probably some of the issues in this questioner's heart, he repeats the answer to his first question. He tells this story, and it has a very obvious answer, doesn't it? Who is a neighbour to this man? The Samaritan. What is he saying to the, the, the expert in the law? You already know. First question, how do I inherit eternal life? Love the Lord with all your God, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. You already know. Well, who is my neighbour? You already know. That's that's the heart of this passage. What Jesus is saying. You already know. And this is such an important thing. The the heart of the Christian faith the, to obey God, to live for Him. The truth that God teaches us is not some esoteric thing. It's not some abstract, weird, religious thing that we have to learn. And it's really complicated. And it takes years and years and years for us to to begin to get, okay, now I begin to understand what it means to be a Christian. It's not something that's alien to us and makes us less than human. The heart of the Christian faith, uh, the, the truth that God gives us, the love of God and of our neighbor is a beautiful, world changing life-enriching, amazing truth that makes sense of the way God has made us and makes sense of the world around us. In the Old Testament, when Moses gave the the law to uh, the the Israelites, he gave them the law, and and at the end of it, he said, this law is not far from you. It's not something that's outside of you. But you have to think, oh, this is so weird. I've got to be odd and strange. And it's not that. It's something that actually should come naturally to us. Yeah. We already know the truth. And if by some fluke or by some special miracle of God, someone were able to love their neighbor as themselves, and that's a question worth asking, isn't it? For every one of us, simple as it sounds, can you regard other people with the same value that you place on your own life? Are you able to do that? If someone were able to do that by their own power, by some special grace of God, that simple action of treating others as they would be treated would actually lead them face to face with Jesus in the end. It doesn't happen because none of us is able to do that. But if it could happen, we would find eternal life. That's Jesus' answer. Simple, you, you know, no complications. <laughs> Just love your neighbour as yourself. It leads you to the face of God. So, what are the implications of this, this truth? It places, Jesus is placing his finger, if you like, on the the sensitive part of this man's life, and actually it's the same for us as well, that actually in most situations, for Christians and for people who aren't yet Christians, the issue, moral issues that we struggle with are not about knowing what to do, what's right and wrong. 
but actually it's having the strength or the courage or the faithfulness to do it. Do you think that's true? And actually we mix those two things up. We mix those two things up. So, the two people who pass by on the other side of the road. He's a, one of, the first one is a priest. Maybe he's on his way to the temple, we don't know. He's worried. If this man is dead, this guy's a priest, he's going, to, he's going to make himself ritually impure according to the laws of the time. And therefore, he, that's, that's going to create complications for him. So he doesn't want to risk going near this guy. Also, if he stops... And uh, this place, there would have been caves. It was renowned that there were robbers there. Um, if he stopped, maybe he's going to get mugged himself as well. Maybe the same thing is going to happen to him. Maybe this is a trap. It wasn't beyond the imagination of a, a band of brigands to make someone up with you know, some fake blood or something like that, lay them down inside the road and you know, lure people in so that they could rob them. So he's thinking, what is the right thing to do? And all these complicated ritual impurity, safety, you know, he's got whatever is going on in his life. Is it the right thing to help this guy? Well, actually, it's very obvious that if you... <laughs> it's the right thing to do, isn't it? But these things complicate it. And actually, it takes courage, it takes fortitude, it takes a certain strength of mind and character to think, yes, okay, these things do matter, but they're not as important as this guy who might die if I don't help him. The same for the Levite. The Levite is a servant in the temple. His his role was to basically make sure the temple ran efficiently. And the same issues would have been there for him, ritual impurity and so on. But actually, it's very, very obvious what the right thing is. is. And we face the same... In our own lives, we have the same challenges. Often, we know what the right thing to do is, but there are a whole host of issues that, that... stop us from doing those things. Not because it makes it more complicated, oh, I'm not really sure what the right thing is to do, but actually it, it, it robs us of the, the courage to do the right thing. I remember, uh, I was going to say counselling, trying to persuade someone once. He was, this guy wasn't a Christian, he was married, but he was, uh, he was married with children, he, he wasn't living with his wife, he was living with another woman and her children. And when I spoke to him, he said to me, I just don't know what the right thing to do is. <laughs> should I move back? You know, should I leave this other family? And you know, the kids have started to grow. To, they call me daddy and, you know, and you know, all this sort of thing. And I just don't know if it's right to go back and live with my wife. I'm like, you know what the right thing is to do. <laughs> you just don't have the courage to do it. That's at the heart of the Christian faith. The heart of the Christian faith. Often we mix those two things up. Here's what God would say to us this morning. Actually, again and again, what God wants us to come to him for is the strength to do the right thing. Not to excuse our bad behaviour, our immorality, our lack of courage, on the basis that I'm not strong enough to do that. We try to justify ourselves all the time. God commands us to love in the most absolute way. Absolute self-giving for the sake of one another. That's our command, isn't it? We lower his command down. We bring it kind of down to earth, if you like. And we say, well, that's not really realistic. Because nobody can do that. God doesn't want us to do that. He doesn't want us to change our standards. He wants us to come to him and say, God, I, I can't do that. Because I'm not strong enough. And he will give us the strength or the courage or whatever it is to do that. That's what he wants us to do. At the heart of 
That's at the heart of the Christian faith. Maybe you're facing a situation like that even now. There's something in your life where you know, there's, a, there's a hard thing to be done. You know it's the right thing, but you lack the courage to do that or to say this or to approach that person or to change your situation. And so you'll begin to think, maybe, because maybe, it's so hard, that's not the right thing to do. And God says, no, you know the right thing to do. You just need to come to me for the strength to do it. The, the passage that um, Nick read earlier says, the Father has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints. God has enabled you to share in that inheritance. That's the gift in Christ, that we can love as God loves if we come to him again and again and ask for his help. At the heart of the Christian, Christian faith, if, if someone isn't a Christian, often you'll look at the, the truths that we talk about. You may listen to this message this morning and think, I, I can't live like that. I can't love someone as I love myself. I can't have that much regard for a person. And God isn't saying you've got to get to this standard and then you are admitted into the church and you can become a Christian you can have eternal life. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is acknowledge the standard. Say, actually, this is an amazing thing. Can you imagine what the world would be like if every person in the world could treat other people as they would like to be treated themselves? It sounds trite, doesn't it? It sounds easy to say, but just do a thought experiment for a moment. What would the world be like? If everyone treated other people the way they... Not, 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 not don't treat other people how you don't want to be treated. That's the silver rule, right? And that we're, most people are kind of, oh, maybe I can manage that. We can't, but we think we can. The golden rule. The thing that you would like someone to do for you. The blessing that you would love to experience. Not the minimum, the maximum. Wouldn't it be nice if, right now, someone did this for me? What would the world be like? An amazing place. That is the world that God is, <laughs> is going to usher us into when Jesus comes again. That is what he wants us to begin to experience in the church now. That is the love that God has poured out for you in Jesus Christ. He has done that for you. And, and what he wants to say to you this morning is... Not can you do that, because you can't, not in your own strength, but do you want that? Do you want to be able to live like that? If the answer is yes, then you want Jesus. If the answer is yes, he actually holds out to you now the gift of eternal life. A life that begins now to bubble up inside you, to bring you peace and joy and to transform your life, to to get rid of that shadow that hangs over you, that restlessness that's inside of you, that directionlessness that's haunting your life, to give you direction and purpose, to come into your life, to give you a relationship with him. To give beauty and goodness and truth. And to lead you through this life and into a life to come as well. He's holding that out to you. The question isn't, can you do it? But do you want it? So that's our first implication. This, this law is not far from you. You already know. The second implication, I think the second thing God would say to us this morning... He wouldn't say this. I would say this because it's clumsy. 
but it's one of those clumsy things that you'll remember because I said it, if that makes sense. <laughs> I'm going to start with this. God is not a nominalist. Can we all say that together? God is not a nominalist. You know what a nominalist is? I can't even say it. Do you know what a nominalist is? Nominalism is just basically like a list of arbitrary rules. Just a list of rules. Imagine like, you know, like a housemaster at a boarding school or like a dictator, you know, a dictator or something like that. You know, just like, you've got to follow these things. This is what I like and you have to do it. And there's no reason for it. You just have to do it because I'm in charge. Why? Because I said so. That is not what God is like. It's not what God is like. This is a very, very important point for this time in our history. Because one thing our culture hates is, it wouldn't say this, but it does, it hates nominalism, it hates arbitrary rules. And for, for good reason. They, the, most people in our culture would look at this story, they would see the Levite and the priest, and what would they say? Religious hypocrites. Nonsense. See what religion does to people? There's this really obvious thing that needs to be done. A guy is lying dead by the road, and they're religious, so of course they ignore him, because religion just messes up everything. It distorts things, it pollutes things, it, it robs us of what's really true. Do you think people would say, people would look at that story, that's where the empathy would be in our culture? I, uh, on your behalf, I trolled, trolled the comment section, not trolled, trolled the comment section of the Times newspaper and found this, uh, this comment from a, a nice person. Anyone who thinks it's okay to indoctrinate kids into ridiculous religions that have no proven basis, in fact, aren't fit to judge what's good for their children. Sad that these nutters have kids in the first place. Wow. It's pretty harsh. <laughs> Our culture says anything that's religion, religious distorts what is normal and good. It gets in the way of what's, you know, what comes naturally to us. And then... It's not entirely untrue that religion can do that. We talked about, last time I preached, we talked about how principles and ideas can actually distort our love for God. Remember the disciples calling down fire? They wanted to call down fire in uh, Samaria because they wouldn't open their homes to Jesus. They're this principle that distorted their understanding of God. And in our culture, everything that seems religious and causes us to... uh, causes people to um, despise people. That isn't from God. But there's a reassurance here in this message that this law is not far from you, that you already know the answer. There's a reassurance here. I'm, I'm particularly speaking to younger people here this morning because you guys are at the, the, the cold face, if you like, of a, of a kind of cultural battle where you're told again and again that religion is a kind of nonsense, that your faith in Jesus Christ is... It's going to rob you of good things. It's going to lead you down a kind of dead end. There's a reassurance here. To be a Christian is not to follow an arbitrary list of rules that God wrote. It's not to follow a caricature of an outdated and old-fashioned and tribal and Bronze Age religion, as you'll read somewhere. But God wants to give you 
life in abundance. He wants to fill your life with goodness. He wants to do good to you. He wants your life to... Actually, he wants people to look at your life. If you follow Jesus Christ faithfully, people will look at your life and they will say, that is beautiful. They will look at your life and they will see goodness. They will, look, they will encounter you and they will encounter truth that changes them. Now, that, that path is not always straightforward. It's not always easy to see. It's not always as easy as a man lying on the side of the road in need of help. And sometimes there will be things where you think, you know, where, God, where following Jesus means you have to do things that don't seem to come naturally. But if you faithfully follow him, you will see that again and again he leads you into truth. Now, the amazing thing is, if we follow Jesus on that road, we, you're not the first person to, to take that journey. We have 2,000 years of brothers and sisters in Christ who have faithfully followed Jesus and come to these moral conundrums and what is the right thing to do? And have faithfully followed him, acknowledging that God's ways are not our ways and his mind is bigger than can fit in our brain. And sometimes there are things we have to trust him. And as they followed him, it begins, it, everything has made sense. And you can have that reassurance. God is not trying to rob you. He's not trying to make you into a freak. He's not trying to make you something that other people don't recognize as good. He's not trying to turn you into a religious nutcase. He's trying to enrich your life with his goodness. He's trying to make you flourish as a person. God would reassure us that he's not arbitrary. It's not just for young people. It's for all of us. You know, we all face hard choices. Maybe the, you know, the causes we support or personal moral issues that are very close to us. When it comes to the crunch, will we sign up to something? Will we make that choice that the Bible says is wrong? We know from 2,000 years of people following Jesus isn't the right thing to do. And it will be hard, but we can trust him. He's not just telling us what to do because he's in charge. But he's telling us what to do because it's good. Okay? So far? Yeah. And the third implication I think God will speak to us about today is the thing we have to, as Christians, we have to guard our hearts most carefully against is reducing people to objects. The love of people if we could love people as God loves them, it's such a reliable guide of how to follow Jesus. I, you know, I just, I, I pray, actually I haven't prayed this very much lately, but I used to often pray, Lord, help me to see people as you see them. If I could see you the way Jesus sees you and say, you are beautiful, You are made in the image of God. If I could see your worth as God sees it right now, then I would treat you as God would treat you. I would love you. It would come instinctively and naturally. And the truth is that I, and you most likely, we're blind to the value of other people. It's our spiritual condition. That's, That's part of the fall. That's part of the sin that we inherit. We're blind to the value of others. And not not just other Christians, but everyone. It's, it's, the, it's the, the muck that we're born into, frankly, that God wants to pluck us out of. I long to be able to do that. 
to be able to see other people as God sees them. And it, to love of neighbour as yourself is such an amazing thing. But if we flip that around, if that's such an amazing thing, what it means is if we treat someone as less than that, as an object, as a, a thing to be discarded or uh, a cause to be ignored or pushed to one side, then that is one of the most pernicious and difficult problems, destructive things in the Christian life. It's one of the most self-deceptive things we can do, is to objectify people. So again, if you look in our culture, this is, a really, this is something God would speak to us about, because it's relevant to us. You look at the way we, people use social media, and I'm not demonising it at all, I'm not saying it's wrong to go on social media, but there's a huge temptation to objectify things and people because of the way they're presented. I was thinking about this about um, Instagram the other day. I, was, uh, I can't remember what I was looking at something on Instagram anyway. And uh, the, the commandment came to my mind, do not covet. Do not covet your neighbour's wife or his house or his oxen. And I was thinking, this, this whole app... <coughs> Basically, is designed for me, designed to make me covet other things that I don't have, to treat things as objects. And it's like, this isn't good for my heart at all. It's, it's kind of woven in there. So much of, of our culture is designed to make us covet stuff and to covet people, to turn them into objects to be used. We have to be so careful of it. This sounds like a silly point, but actually, I, I genuinely wonder about this particular thing. I, I often wonder about what effect watching a lot of television and films had on me growing up. Again, I'm not demonising, you know, don't hear me like a fundamentalist 1960s Southern Baptist pastor here. I'm not saying you shouldn't watch telly. But I'm saying, like, I remember growing up watching TV uh, and films, and in so much of what I watched, people were divided into, basically into black and white sort of goodies and baddies. And I'm thinking, all, all the hours of television I've watched over the years the days and days' worth of television I've watched over the years, has it trained me to categorise people into goodies and baddies? Do you ever think about that? Just now. It's like a brand new thought. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> I genuinely think it has, because actually I have this habit that I'm working, the Lord's working on, but I have a habit of, like, of wanting the, someone I like and someone I write off. And I turn people into objects of like, you know, they've got chess pieces on a board or something. Do you know what I mean? You're, you're on my side or you're not on my side. Do you ever feel like that? Do you treat people like that? Make me feel better, someone nods. <laughs> 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 I mean, just, you know, silly American like high school films and stuff where like everyone is a caricature, aren't they? Like you're either on the side of the protagonist and they're really good and they're, you know, thoughtful and wise or they're the bad guy. He does stupid stuff. You know, this, we have, uh, there's a mantra of melodrama. Good people, bad people, good people, bad people. That can infect us. And what's destructive about that is it turns people into objects. It turns them into Samaritans, bad people. Priests and Levites, good people. <laughs> and actually, the truth is that People are people, made in God's image, really, really complex. And actually seeing people face to face and engaging with them as persons made in God's image is at the heart of the Christian faith. Treating people with the value that they deserve. Jesus does that to this man. Have you noticed that? He has gone up to test Jesus. 
He is treating Jesus like an enemy, an object to be overcome, a thing to be assessed, to be assayed and weighted and carotid. And Jesus turns his testing question around and deals with the issues of this teacher of the law's heart and treats him as a person. He doesn't dismiss him. He doesn't try and make him look stupid. He goes right to the heart of the issue. Jesus is the, is the master of that. You think of like Zacchaeus, you know, the tax collector, baddie. And he went to his home and he ate with him and he was converted. The woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair. A woman of ill repute, probably a prostitute in front of all these other people, a baddie. And Jesus saw her not as a good person or a bad person. He saw her as a person made in God's image, someone to be engaged with. And what God would say to us is, in all our habits, whether it's television or social media or driving in the car or anything where we tend to turn people into one-dimensional caricatures, black or white, good or bad, that is really, really destructive for your soul. It puts a barrier between you and God. It's really, really pernicious. It can even be really subtle things as well. I think, you know, this is where Christians have an edge over our culture. A culture that claims to be compassionate. You know, the, 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 the system of tolerance uh, that's, that's kind of pushed on us, the idea of tolerance is an idea that we love mankind, we love people as a whole. But when it comes to face-to-face, we don't really like them very much. It's very much easier to love mankind or human, humanity than it is to love people. It's a, one of my favourite stories. Um, uh, this author writes about uh, this guy who's having a crisis. He's a Christian. He's like, I love humanity. I give all my wealth to charity. I do this. But if you, if you put me in a room with another man for half an hour, by the end of that hour, I will hate him. I want to kill him. The whistling of his nose. The, the, the way he eats an apple. You know, something like that. It will annoy me so much. It can be subtle, you see. We can think that we love people. And actually have a real dislike of the people we, we meet. And it's that that God wants to hone in on. Where is that more important than church? I love the church, just not the people I'm at church with. <laughs> John says in 1 John, that's not an option. If you don't love the brethren, you don't love God. But if you walk in love, you, walk in, you live in God. That's really important, isn't it? So above all, you know, I think about all the different places, your workplace, your car. I come back to the driving car thing because it's an issue for a lot of people. We object to, you know, turn people into baddies. And but where else? Church. Super important, isn't it? We don't turn people into one-dimensional characters. We don't judge someone's motives. We don't see them as this type of person or that type of person or that's their motive for doing this or this is their motive for doing that. I barely know what's going on inside my own heart. Do you know what's going on inside your heart? And I have, the, I have the temerity to judge other people and imagine that I know why they're doing things. The Lord knows what's going on in my heart and he knows what's going on in yours, but, you know, I don't know. And yet, again and again, we judge one another, don't we? So what God is calling us to is guard our hearts most carefully against this reducing people to these one-dimensional characters, especially as a fellowship. Have you done that?
lately. You're this type, they're that type of person. This is why they're doing this. If you turn someone into an object, God would ask us to repent. You know, the greatest reassurance in this passage, I think, is God calls us to this impossible love because that's how he loves us. He's our neighbour. That's quite remarkable. It seems like an underpowered word to use, doesn't it? He's our Lord, our Saviour, our bridegroom, (laughs) our friend. He's our neighbour. You know, we go and borrow coffee off him or something. (laughs) He treats us. He loves us as he loves himself. God loves you as he loves himself. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? That's why he commands us to do that. He sees us as infinitely valuable. Worthy not just of inconvenience, but risk. Jesus is this man, isn't he? He is the picture of the Samaritan, if you like. He descends not from Jerusalem, but from heaven. He's not going to Jericho, but to earth. We're on that journey, and on the journey to... God made us in his image, on that journey to living out the commandment that God has called us to, to fill the earth with his goodness, to love one another as he loved ourselves. The enemy came and robbed us and left us bleeding and dying on the side of the road, unable to fulfill the command. And Jesus came. And he didn't just put himself at risk. He humbled himself and made himself... A servant. He took upon himself death. He didn't just put himself at risk of being robbed. He handed himself over to the one who robs. And allowed himself to be bound and tied. And not just beaten. Yes, beaten. But killed. To rescue us. He lifted us up out of our brokenness and our our desperate situation. Our complete inability. Our captivity to the enemy. He lifted us up and he didn't put us on his donkey, he put us on his shoulders and he carried us and he brought us to safety and he's placed us under the guardianship, not of an innkeeper but the Holy Spirit and he's given us the fellowship of the church the gift of not two coins but baptism to save us and wash us and communion to unite us to himself and he's given us abundant gifts so to help us recover He's anointed our wounds with the oil of the Holy Spirit and the wine of his blood to heal us and restore us. And he's given us enough to get us through until he returns. Isn't that amazing? He loves you. He loves you. That's the reassurance of this passage. God commands you to love like this. Not as an arbitrary rule. Not because it's some weight to put on your shoulders. But this is the love that he himself enjoys. To see others as made in his image and to delight in them. And to love you like that. To pour out his life for you. And he has done that for you. His command is based not on something outside of yourself. But it's close to your heart. Because he's already done that for you. So do you feel in the situation you're in at the moment? Beaten? Or abandoned? Lonely, judged, stuck, 
The Bible says God supports all who fall. He lifts up the brokenhearted. His eye is upon you. Even now, he's coming to the place where you lie. He'll not leave you there. He'll not leave you where you are. No matter how hard or long the road, he will carry you to safety. This truth, this reassurance, God's love for you underpins the whole of our Christian life. It's not a duty, not a task, not a checkbox to be ticked. It is a relationship with the God who loves us. The Good Samaritan, this is how God has loved us. Within the security of that ocean of blessing, that vast palace that God has ushered us into and surrounded us with his treasure, he calls to us and says, go and do likewise.